Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be picking up our discussion here of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-7. to We've spent a couple of episodes just getting through verses 3 and 4, talking about the importance of addressing false teachers. So I'm not going to go back and rehash any of that here. You can go back and listen to the previous two episodes and get all that. But now that we've covered the importance of addressing false teachers, we want to move on to verse 5, and we want to talk about the motive of addressing false teachers and the motive in addressing false teachers. Why should we address false teaching. Not just is it important, which we clearly established that it is, but why should we do this? And we see this in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the motive for addressing or the motive in addressing false teaching is this, uh, and that's what verse 5 is all about. So the question that we have is, have you ever questioned someone's motives for doing something, whether in the ministry or just day-to-day life? Have you looked at something that somebody did, especially if it's something that maybe is controversial? And the reason that I frame it that way is because for certain, we live in a day and age when confronting something like a view of the scriptures or the way somebody practices Christianity uh, comes under ridicule and fire by others. Like if, if you dare to say to somebody that they're doing something wrong, according to the Bible, they say, you know, who are you to judge? And I've often said this before that I think one of the most famous verses in the Bible today in this postmodern era that we live in is not John three sixteen because we are living in a progressively biblically illiterate society. They're getting worse and worse with regard to biblical illiteracy. And the common person off the street, especially younger who has no exposure or background to the Bible, probably isn't going to know John 3.16. But you know what they do know? And this is not somebody who has the spirit of Christ necessarily. If they've bothered to learn anything in the scriptures, it's Matthew 7.1, which is judge not lest you be judged. And of course, they're not going on to read the rest of the scriptures that surround that and its proper context, uh, recognizing that, in fact, the scriptures do command us to judge, but they don't want to be bothered with those trifling facts. But when we question why people do certain things, you know, we need, it's a good lesson for us to stand back and say, do we know all the facts? Do we know all the context? But when it comes to the church, when it comes to the gospel, Calling out false teaching is not something that is just, you know, it's something that I'm doing it because I have an ax to grind or something like that. Uh, There is, especially for the person who's doing it for the right reasons, there is a right way to do it and there's a right motive for doing that. And I should say, and we'll get to this as we move through the book here, we've already made mention of this, but there are there comes a time when somebody's false teaching goes beyond 
the ability to correct it. You know, and we already talked a little bit about discretion here where Paul doesn't name them because in his view, it still seems like there's hope for repentance, for restoration, and those things. But when you move beyond that to public false teaching and publicly denying the gospel, now you've moved into new territory. And when you are leading other people actively away from the truth, then that needs to be called out. If you're doing that publicly, then you're going to be called out publicly. But why call anybody out publicly? That's the question, right? Well, can't you just let them get away with it? You know, you have people that are, you know, claiming to do what they're doing in the name of Christ, and yet you take their statements and you compare them against the scripture and it's not the gospel. Why, why do we, why say anything at all? What's the motive? Well, that's what we're addressing here. So as we get into the motive, uh, we want to con- first consider this, the aim of the charge. And that's exactly the language that Paul uses here in verse five, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of the charge, that is correction, because he's been charged to correct false teaching. The reason that he's doing it and the purpose, the thing that's driving this, the motivation, I should say not purpose, but motivation is love. And so there are two things going on here. Number one, the first that we need to consider is the aim. What does Paul mean by aim? Well, the word here is telos. And uh, we, we use this, it is perhaps a bit more obscure today, maybe not the most common word, but it does exist in the English language. And what we're talking about is the end. When we talk about teleology or teleology, uh, we're talking about the ultimate goal of something. So he says the end goal of what we're doing when we're confronting false teaching is love. Okay. So he's talking about the final goal of correcting false teaching and wrong thinking. So the question that we naturally have to that is this, are there some things that you can simply let slide by? And by that, I'm not saying in general, all the things that you can list that come to the top of your head, but I'm talking when it comes to Christianity. And of course, to answer that question, we're going to have to, we're going to have to qualify that and we're going to have to set some boundaries. Okay. Are there Are there things that are primary doctrines that if we compromise those things, we have compromised the gospel? We've touched on that before, and the uh, obvious answer to that is yes. If you deny, for instance, the virgin birth of Christ and you tamper with that and say, well, it's not necessary to have Christ born of a virgin. Can't you just accept that he was a good man and he lived on earth and he died this death on our behalf? Do you really have to talk about the virgin birth? You mean you stop and think about that for any length of time and it gets a little weird because like that's not possible and so forth. And that might be a a big deterrent to somebody. Well, the fact of the matter is, is you have to have it. Okay. Uh, You can't have it any other way. You cannot have the theanthropic person, the God man who is truly God and truly man without the virgin birth, not possible. So you have to have that. Okay. Can you have the forgiveness of sins? Can you have that pardon uh, that is extended to us, the gift of God, right? We know that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, but the second part of that verse says, but the gift of God. How do we get this gift? Well, his wrath had to be satisfied, and you know, how do we have that? It's through the, the payment that he has uh, by spilling his blood. 
Well, is it enough that he just spilled his blood or does there have to be something that follows that? Well, we have to have the resurrection of the dead. You know, these are things that, that you cannot compromise. And so once those are compromised, then you don't have the gospel anymore. And so we, we set boundaries and we set parameters and we say, you know, here's, here are doctrines that are uh, primary doctrines. But then you get to things that are secondary and what we would call tertiary uh, doctrines that are of lesser importance that do not pertain to the gospel. And we're not saying that all, you know, there are any doctrines that aren't important, but the fact is, is do they directly mess with your ability to be saved? Well, there are some doctrines that maybe aren't quite to that level. So when we talk about letting things slide by, the answer is, can we let them slide by? Or that's the question. And the answer is possibly but not when it comes to the integrity of the gospel. When it's down to that, letting things slide is not an option. And so if somebody comes to you and they're messing with a primary doctrine, one like we've just mentioned, we have an obligation. We must correct. But at the same time, those receiving correction must understand the goal and motivation of that correction. If we come up to them and just tell them that they're wrong, Maybe there needs to be a little bit of a uh, a qualification with that and an understanding, and maybe that's going to come with an explanation. They need to understand that what we're trying to do is preserve the integrity of the gospel out of love for them to make sure they don't get it right, that their soul's not in jeopardy, and out of love for our Savior, okay? And, and so that's the point, that the second aspect of this aim of the charge, right? You have the, the telos or the telos, uh, the, the ultimate end, the reason that Paul is commanding Timothy to do these things. And the aim then is love. And this is agape love. This is that pure selfless, the highest form of self-sacrificing love. So that's the aim of the charge. And then we also see as we're addressing the motive in addressing false teaching, the source, what is the source of this. What is, what is the source of us going out to correct somebody? Are we correcting simply out of our own hubris, out of our own pride to state it a different way? Is, is that what we're doing? That I just believe so much in myself that I am willing to just go out there and do battle royal with anybody who disagrees with me on any point. Well, I'm not doing it for that reason to make myself uh, better in my own eyes and to try and exalt myself above you and make myself seem better and you and you worse or smaller or whatever, okay? The reason that we do this is we have a pure heart, to have a clean heart or a pure heart. And what we're talking about here is the transformation of a sinful heart of stone to a heart of flesh. This is the type of heart that is laid bare before the searching eyes of God. Think about what we have recorded for us in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It's a prayer here. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Or what about later on when Paul has his second letter to Timothy, his swan song letter, if you will. Second Timothy 2, verse 22, he writes to Timothy saying, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Okay, so what we're saying here is this idea of going out and correcting somebody should be done with a desire uh, or out of the sincereness, out of the purity of our heart. In other words, we can't have our own sinfulness, like our own ego and 
our pride standing in the way and driving us to do this thing. I'm not correcting somebody because I think it makes me look some uh, me look better or anything. The point is, is I'm desiring to do this, uh, not for personal gain, but because I love my savior, I'm trying to do this because I love the person whom I'm correcting. And I don't want to see them guilty of committing an error and continuing to propagate a false gospel, false doctrine. You know, if they're flirting with this thing, we've got to nip it in the bud. If they're persisting in it, we call them to repentance and hopefully they will repent because we care about them. That's the pure heart. This isn't about me. This is about the gospel. This is about what Jesus died for. This is about maintaining the integrity of the gospel. That comes from a pure heart. So, He's setting us up, and I can't stress this enough, that when it comes to walking the Christian walk, when it comes to living the Christian faith, we have to know what the gospel is inside and out. We have to know uh, you know, those things that cannot be compromised. And when we see people around us, notice I said when, not if. It's never a matter of if. You will always find somebody until Jesus returns There is always going to be somebody who is going to take and twist something about the gospel and change it into something that it's not. And it might be subtle and we have to be willing to stand up and say, no, I'm sorry, that's not correct. Why? Why do we do that? Because we love the person, because we have a sincere and clean and pure heart. And because we're trying to maintain a good conscience, he says, as we go on, right? The aim of our charge, the end of that is love. That love issues. How do I have self-sacrificial love? How do I do that? I have a pure heart and I have a good conscience. Now, remember, Paul is also the one who said, if possible, live at peace with all men. And he says he strives to have a conscious void of offense between or before God and men, if possible. He always wants to have a, a clean conscience before God. That trumps everything. And if it's possible to have a clean conscience before both audiences, God and man, then I'm going to try and do that. But God always, and man most of the time until it conflicts with having a good conscience before God. But that's the aim. That's the goal. That's the motivation in, in being obedient in confronting false teaching. And sadly, Sadly, not only do churches tolerate false teaching today, but we have a lack of people who will call out false teaching, and that is just as problematic. Now, I would submit to you to support this assertion that I have made here, two case studies from Revelation chapter 2. Now, you'll remember that in Revelation 2 and 3, we have the address uh, by Jesus to the seven churches, and two of these churches are tolerating, uh, they're tolerating false teaching. They're tolerating problematic doctrine within their church, and they're going to be judged. They're called to repentance here. Uh, the two churches are the church at Pergamum, uh, starting in verse 12 of chapter two, and also the church in Thyatira starts in verse 18. Okay. So to the church at Pergamum, uh, he says, uh, and the angel of the church of Pergamum write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Listen to this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But verse 14 of Revelation 2, 
I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, verse 16, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay. So he says, he says, he gives them that, you know, you did a good job in these things at the beginning, but then he says, I have a couple things against you. You tolerated a corruption of doctrine within your church and you're allowing it. And what is the, what do we have in verse 16? Repent. That's correction. Where do you think that issues from? Now, Keep in mind, this is coming from the mouth of Jesus. Of course, it's a pure heart. Do you think the aim of the charge of correction here to the church at Pergamum, do you think it's love? Is he saying this out of love? Is he calling to them a repentance out of love? Of course he is, okay? What about to the church at Thyatira? Verse 18, the angel of the church of Thyatira, right? The words of the son of God who has eyes like flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, okay? Uh, but I have this against you, verse 20, you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Okay. And uh, so, so on. Uh, but to the rest of you, verse 24, in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. Okay, so what is he saying? He's saying that this church also, uh, not only the church in Pergamum, but the church in Thyatira, they're tolerating false teaching. And so we have to correct it, and we correct it not because we're full of ourselves or any other thing. We do it out of love. We do it out of love for the gospel. We do it out of love for the Savior. We do it out of love for the person for whom we are correcting because we're calling them to repentance. Make sure you stay true to the gospel. This is having a good conscience before God and before men and it is a matter of sincere faith. If my faith says the gospel saves, and I believe that, and of course that is something that is built on an intangible, it's something that we have to take by faith. For uh, faith is the substance of things, hope for the evidence of things not seen, right? Uh, the, the point is, is we know what has happened historically. We can confirm the person of Jesus Christ in history, all of those things, but we take it on faith. The Bible says I am a sinner. The Bible also says that there's evidence of direct creation of God all around us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. We know God exists. If God exists and he's holy and he's disclosed himself to us, we are now going to stand accountable to him. What does that mean? It means that I'm a sinner. What does my sin do in the presence of an eternally holy God? It makes me not able to be in his presence, and I'm going to have to be away from his presence. And the only way that I can come into his presence is to have my sins removed. And the only way to have my sins removed is I can't do it. Only God can remove my sins, and the only way he did that was by sending the second person of the triunity to earth to don human flesh, to maintain true divinity with true humanity, and to walk sinlessly on this earth and to die, not deserving death, not deserving the wrath of God on himself, but taking it upon himself for my sake. 
If that's not love, I don't know what is. But the whole point is, is if that's what I preach and proclaim, because that's what the scriptures teach, that's what Jesus said about himself, then whatever I do that is tied to that is a matter of sincere faith so that when somebody comes along and perverts and twists that, it is an expression of sincere faith that says, wait a second, that's not the gospel. You can't do that to the gospel. That's the whole point. If this is the gospel and this is what saves me and puts me on the path of eternal life, takes me off the path of destruction where we're all headed, and you're twisting that and changing that because it suits your fancy, it tickles your ears, it makes you feel good in this life, you can't do that. And you can see clearly that that's an issue of sincere faith, and that's the whole point. So really, verse 5 is an incredible verse that walks us through the motive in addressing false teaching, all right? Let's go back to uh, Hendrickson and Kistemacher here. They have some incredible comments to say on this point. He says, when a sinner is drawn to Christ, the heart is first of all regenerated. The result is that the man's conscience begins to plague him in such a manner that, having come under conviction, he is happy to embrace the Redeemer by means of a conscious living faith. Hence the sequence, heart-conscious faith, is entirely natural. Moreover, it is clearly evident why the Apostle states that these three, and in that order, give rise to love. When the God of love, love is his very name, 1 John 4, 8, implants his own new life in man's heart, the latter naturally becomes a loving heart. A conscience cleared of guilt and made obedient to God's law will begin to approve only such thoughts, words, and deeds, past or contemplated, which are in harmony with the one summarizing aim of that law, namely love. And genuine faith, which embraces Christ and all his benefits, will result in genuine love for the benefactor and for all those who are embraced in his love. Hence, Paul speaks of love from or out of, or to say, issues from a pure heart and a conscious good and a faith without hypocrisy. So great uh, insight and wisdom and summary of, of what we have been talking about there. So when it comes to that, and I just want to encourage you with this, I mean, this, this whole episode here is just looking at the motive for correcting false teaching. Don't feel ashamed when, when you, if you know the gospel, and I'm assuming if you've been following this podcast for any time, you know the gospel and you affirm the gospel and you say yes and amen to all the words of God. When you encounter somebody who is twisting or perverting some aspect of the gospel and you feel this desire to speak up and to make sure that that is corrected, know that that desire is, is obedience, right? That's the Holy Spirit convicting, but also, you know, your, your desire to preserve the integrity of the gospel, that is a matter of faith, that is a matter of love, this is a matter of a clean conscience. And, and the whole point is, is you are well within your bounds to do that. And in fact, I would even go so far as to say is if you don't confront it, then, you know, there's a danger there. As we already read about those churches, uh, Pergamum and Thyatira in Revelation, t- 
tolerating false doctrine is a problem. What are Jesus' words to them? You are tolerating this doctrine? What does he say? Repent. So in other words, if if it comes into your hearing and you know the gospel and you know the right things and you know the fundamentals, the primary doctrines, right? You know those things and you hear somebody twisting them and perverting them and you don't say anything and you tolerate it. That's as bad as anything that they're saying because you're allowing other people to get sucked along with that. And so I just want you to be assured from the words of scripture, not my words, that not only are we called to do the same thing, it doesn't just have to be a pastor doing this, but when we do it, we've got to check our motives and know that if we feel passionately, especially about the fundamentals of the gospel, that we are well within the bounds of doing exactly what God has commanded us to do when it comes to preserving the integrity of the gospel. So the motive of addressing false teaching is love, which is sourced from a pure heart, from a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's all we have time for today. We'll pick it up in our next episode with verse six. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.